Chapter Twelve of Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eric Metzler. Shoes. John de Graffenreid Atwood, ate of the lotus, root, stem, and flower. The tropics gobbled him up. He plunged enthusiastically into his work, which was to try to forget Rosine. Now they who dine on the lotus rarely consume it plain. There's a sauce au diable that goes with it, and the distillers are the chefs who prepare it. And on Johnny's menu-card it read, Brandy. With a bottle between them, he and Billy Keogh would sit on the porch of the little consulate at night and roar out great, indecorous songs, until the natives, slipping hastily past, would shrug a shoulder and mutter things to themselves about the Americanos Diablos. One day Johnny's mozo brought the mail and dumped it on the table. Johnny leaned from his hammock and fingered the four or five letters dejectedly. Keogh was sitting on the edge of the table, chopping lazily with a paper-knife at the legs of a centipede that was crawling along the stationery. Johnny was in that phase of lotus-eating when all the world tastes bitter in one's mouth. "'Same old thing,' he complained. "'Fool people writing for information about the country. They want to know all about raising fruit, and how to make a fortune without work. Half of them don't even send stamps for a reply. They think a consul hasn't anything to do but write letters. Slit those envelopes for me, old man, and see what they want. I'm feeling too rocky to move.' Keogh, acclimated beyond all possibility of ill-humour, drew his chair to the table with smiling compliance on his rose-pink countenance, and began to slit open the letters. Four of them were from citizens in various parts of the United States who seemed to regard the consul at Coralio as a cyclopedia of information. They asked long lists of questions, numerically arranged, about the climate, products, possibilities, laws, business chances, and statistics of the country in which the consul had the honor of representing his own government. "'Write him, please, Billy,' said that inert official. "'Just a line, referring them to the latest consular report. Tell him the State Department will be delighted to furnish the literary gems. Sign my name. Don't let your pen scratch, Billy. It'll keep me awake.' "'Don't snore,' said Keogh, amiably. "'And I'll do your work for you. You need a corps of assistance, anyhow.' Don't see how you ever get out a report. Wake up a minute. There's one more letter. It's from your own town, too, Dalesburg. That's so, murmured Johnny, showing a mild and obligatory interest. What's it about? Postmaster writes, explained Keogh. Says a citizen of the town wants some facts and advice from you. Says the citizen has an idea in his head of coming down where you are and opening a shoe store. Wants to know if you think the business would pay. Says he's heard of the boom along this coast, and wants to get in on the ground floor. In spite of the heat and his bad temper, Johnny's hammock swayed with his laughter. Keogh laughed, too, and the pet monkey on the top shelf of the bookcase shattered in shrill sympathy with the ironical reception of the letter from Dalesburg. "'Great bunions!' exclaimed the consul. "'Shoe store! What'll they ask about next, I wonder? Overcoat factory, I reckon.' "'Say, Billy, of our three thousand citizens, how many do you suppose ever had on a pair of shoes?' Keogh reflected judicially. "'Let's see, there's you and me and—' "'Not me,' said Johnny, promptly and incorrectly, holding up a foot encased in a disreputable deerskin zapato. 
I haven't been a victim to shoes in months. But you've got em, though, went on Keogh. And there's Goodwin and Blanchard and Getty and old Lutz and Doc Gregg and that Italian that's agent for the Banana Company. And there's old Delgado. No, he wears sandals. And, oh, yes, there's Madama Ortiz, what capes the hotel. She had on a pair of red slippers at the Baile the other night. And Miss Passa, her daughter, that went to school in the States, she brought back some civilized notions in the way of footgear. And there's the Commandante's sister that dresses up her feet on feast days. And Mrs. Getty, who wears a two with a Castilian instep. And that's about all the ladies. Let's see, don't some of the soldiers at the quartel? No, that's so. They're allowed shoes only when on the march. In barracks they turn their little toeses out to grass. About right, agreed the consul. Not over twenty out of the three thousand ever felt leather on their walking arrangements. Oh, yes, Coralio is just the town for an enterprising shoe store that doesn't want to part with its goods. Wonder if old Patterson is trying to jolly me. He always was full of things he called jokes. Write him a letter, Billy. I'll dictate it. We'll jolly him back a few. Keogh dipped his pen and wrote at Johnny's dictation, with many pauses filled in with smoke and sundry travellings of the bottle and glasses. The following reply to the Dalesburg communication was perpetrated. Mr. Obadiah Patterson, Dalesburg, Alabama. Dear Sir, in reply to your favour of July 2nd, I have the honour to inform you that, according to my opinion, there is no place on the habitable globe that presents to the eye stronger evidence of the need of a first-class shoe-store than does the town of Coralio. There are three thousand inhabitants in the place, and not a single shoe-store. The situation speaks for itself. This coast is rapidly becoming the goal of enterprising businessmen, but the shoe-business is one that has been sadly overlooked or neglected. In fact, there are a considerable number of our citizens actually without shoes at present. Besides the want above mentioned, there is also a crying need for a brewery, a college of higher mathematics, a coal-yard, and a clean and intellectual punch-and-judy show. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, John de Graffenreid Atwood, U.S. Consul at Coralio. P.S. Hello, Uncle Obadiah. How's the old burg racking along? What would the government do without you and me? Look out for a green-headed parrot and a bunch of bananas soon, from your old friend, Johnny. I throw in that postscript, explained the consul, so Uncle Obadiah won't take offense at the official tone of the letter. Now, Billy, you get that correspondence fixed up and send Pancho to the post office with it. The Ariadne takes the mail out tomorrow if they make up that load of fruit today. The night program in Coralio never varied. The recreations of the people were soporific and flat. They wandered about, barefoot and aimless, speaking lowly and smoking cigar or cigarette. Looking down on the dimly lighted ways, one seemed to see a threading maze of brunette ghosts tangled with a procession of insane fireflies. In some houses the thrumming of lugubrious guitars added to the depression of the triste night. Giant tree-frogs rattled in the foliage as loudly as the end-man's bones in a minstrel troupe. By nine o'clock the streets were almost deserted. Nor at the consulate was there often a change of bill. Keogh would come there nightly, for Corrales' one cool place was the little seaward porch of that official residence. The brandy would be kept moving, 
and before midnight sentiment would begin to stir in the heart of the self-exiled consul. Then he would relate to Keogh the story of his ended romance. Each night Keogh would listen patiently to the tale, and be ready with untiring sympathy. "'But don't you think for a minute,' thus Johnny would always conclude his woeful narrative, "'that I'm grieving about that girl, Billy. I've forgotten her. She never enters my mind. If she were to enter that door right now, my pulse wouldn't gain a beat. That's all over long ago.' "'Don't I know it?' Keogh would answer. "'Of course you've forgotten her. Proper thing to do.' wasn't quite okay of her to listen to the knocks that er dink pawson kept giving you pink dawson a world of contempt would be in johnny's tones poor white trash that's what he was had five hundred acres of farming land though and that counted maybe i'll have a chance to get back at him some day the dawsons weren't anybody everybody in alabama knows the atwoods say billy did you know my mother was a de Graffenreed? why no keogh would say is that so he had heard it some three hundred times fact the de Graffenreeds of hancock county but i never think of that girl any more do i billy not for a minute my boy would be the last sounds heard by the conqueror of cupid at this point johnny would fall into a gentle slumber and keogh would saunter out to his own shack under the calabash tree at the edge of the plaza in a day or two the letter from the dalesburg postmaster and its answer had been forgotten by the corralio exiles but on the twenty-sixth day of july the fruit of the reply appeared upon the tree of events the andador a fruit steamer that visited corralio regularly drew into the offing and anchored the beach was lined with spectators while the quarantine doctor and the custom-house crew rowed out to attend to their duties an hour later billy keogh lounged into the consulate clean and cool in his linen clothes and grinning like a pleased shark guess what he said to johnny lounging in his hammock too hot to guess said johnny lazily your shoe store man's come said keogh rolling the sweet morsel on his tongue with a stock of goods big enough to supply the continent as far down as terra del fuego they're carting his cases over to the custom house now six barges full they brought ashore and have paddled back for the rest oh ye saints in glory won't there be regalements in the air when he gets on to the joke and has an interview with mr consul it'll be worth nine years in the tropics just to witness that one joyful moment keogh loved to take his mirth easily he selected a clean place on the matting and lay upon the floor the walls shook with his enjoyment johnny turned half over and blinked don't tell me he said that anybody was fool enough to take that letter seriously four thousand dollars stock of goods gasped keogh in ecstasy talk about coals to newcastle why didn't he take a shipload of palm-leaf fans to spitzbergen while he was about it saw the old codger on the beach you ought to have been there when he put on his specs and squinted at the five hundred or so barefooted citizens standing around are you telling the truth billy asked the consul weakly am i you ought to see the bunco gentleman's daughter he brought along looks she makes the brick dust senoritas here look like tar babies go on said johnny if you can stop that asinine giggling i hate to see a grown man make a laughing hyena of himself name is hemstetter went on keogh he's a 
Hello, what's the matter now? Johnny's moccasin feet struck the floor with a thud as he wriggled out of his hammock. Get up, you idiot, he said sternly, or I'll brain you with this inkstand. That's Rosine and her father. Gad, what a driveling idiot old Patterson is. Get up here, Billy Keel, and help me. What the devil are we going to do? Has all the world gone crazy? Keel rose and dusted himself. He managed to regain a decorous demeanor. "'Situation has got to be met, Johnny,' he said with some success at seriousness. "'I didn't think about its being your girl until you spoke. First thing to do is to get them comfortable quarters. You go down and face the music, and I'll trot out to Goodwin's and see if Mrs. Goodwin won't take them in. They've got the decentest house in town.' "'Bless you, Billy,' said the consul. "'I knew you wouldn't desert me. The world's bound to come to an end, but maybe we can stave it off for a day or two. Keogh hoisted his umbrella and set out for Goodwin's house. Johnny put on his coat and hat. He picked up the brandy bottle, but set it down again without drinking, and marched bravely down to the beach. In the shade of the custom-house walls he found Mr. Hempsteader and Rosine surrounded by a mass of gaping citizens. The customs officers were ducking and scraping, while the captain of the Andador interpreted the business of the new arrivals. Rosine looked healthy and very much alive. She was gazing at the strange scenes around her with amused interest. There was a faint blush upon her round cheek as she greeted her old admirer. Mr. Hemsetter shook hands with Johnny in a very friendly way. He was an oldish, impractical man, one of that numerous class of erratic businessmen who are forever dissatisfied and seeking a change. "'I am very glad to see you, John. May I call you John?' he said. Let me thank you for your prompt answer to our postmaster's letter of inquiry. He volunteered to write to you on my behalf. I was looking about for something different in the way of a business in which the profits would be greater. I had noticed in the papers that this coast was receiving much attention from investors. I am extremely grateful for your advice to come. I sold out everything that I possess, and invested the proceeds in as fine a stock of shoes as could be bought in the north. You have a picturesque town here, John. I hope business will be as good as your letter justifies me in expecting." Johnny's agony was abbreviated by the arrival of Keel, who hurried up with the news that Mrs. Goodwin would be much pleased to place rooms at the disposal of Mr. Hemstetter and his daughter. So there Mr. Hemstetter and Rosine were at once conducted and left to recuperate from the fatigue of the voyage, while Johnny went down to see that the cases of shoes were safely stored in the customs warehouse pending their examination by the officials. Keo, grinning like a shark, skirmished about to find Goodwin, to instruct him not to expose to Mr. Hempsteader the true state of Coralio as a shoe-market, until Johnny had been given a chance to redeem the situation, if such a thing were possible. That night the consul and Keo held a desperate consultation on the breezy porch of the consulate. "'Send him back home,' began Keo, reading Johnny's thoughts. "'I would,' said Johnny after a little silence. But I've been lying to you, Billy. All right about that, said Keogh, affably. I've told you hundreds of times, said Johnny, slowly, that I'd forgotten that girl, haven't I? About three hundred and seventy-five, admitted the monument of patience. I lied, repeated the consul. Every time. I never forgot her for one minute. I was an obstinate ass for running away just because she said no once and I was too proud a fool to go back. I talked with Rosine a few minutes this evening up at Goodwin's. I found out one thing. 
You remember that farmer fellow who was always after her? Dink Pawson? asked Keogh. Pink Dawson. Well, he wasn't a hill of beans to her. She says she didn't believe a word of the things he told her about me. But I'm sewed up now, Billy. That tomfool letter we sent ruined whatever chance I had left. She'll despise me when she finds out that her old father has been made the victim of a joke that a decent schoolboy wouldn't have been guilty of. Shoes? Why, he couldn't sell twenty pairs of shoes in Coralio if he kept store here for twenty years. You put a pair of shoes on one of these Caribs or Spanish brown boys, and what did he do? Stand on his head and squeal until he'd kick them off. None of them ever wore shoes, and they never will. If I send them back home, I'll have to tell the whole story, and what'll she think of me? I want that girl worse than ever, Billy, and now when she's in reach I've lost her forever because I tried to be funny when the thermometer was at one o two. Keep cheerful, said the optimistic heel, and let him open the store. I've been busy myself this afternoon. We can stir up a temporary boom in footgear, anyhow. I'll buy six pairs when the doors open. I've been around and seen all the fellows and explained the catastrophe. They'll all buy shoes like they was centipedes. Frank Goodwin will take cases of em. The Gettys want about eleven pairs between em. Clancy is going to invest the savings of weeks, and even old Doc Gregg wants three pairs of alligator-hide slippers if they've got any tens. Blanchard got a look at Miss Hempstetter, and as he's a Frenchman, no less than a dozen pairs will do for him. A dozen customers, said Johnny, for a four thousand dollar stock of shoes. It won't work. There's a big problem here to figure out. You go home, Billy, and leave me alone. I've got to work at it all by myself. Take that bottle of three-star along with you, no, sir. Not another ounce of booze for the United States Consul. I'll sit here tonight and pull out the think-stop. If there's a soft place on this proposition anywhere, I'll land on it. If there isn't, there'll be another wreck to the credit of the gorgeous tropics. Keogh left, feeling that he could be of no use. Johnny laid a handful of cigars on a table and stretched himself in a steamer chair. When the sudden daylight broke, silvering the harbor ripples, he was still sitting there. Then he got up, whistling a little tune, and took his bath. At nine o'clock he walked down to the dingy little cable office and hung for half an hour over a blank. The result of his application was the following message, which he signed and had transmitted at a cost of thirty-three dollars. To Pinckney Dawson, Dalesburg, Alabama. Draft for a hundred dollars comes to you next mail. Ship me immediately five hundred pounds stiff dry cockleburs. New use here in arts. Market price twenty cents pound. Further orders likely. Rush. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America.